0: Name of
1: the book again.
0: The name of the book is the name of the book is Void Mind. Mm-hmm. It says two Dhamma lectures presented on the 10th and the 17th of July 1982 at Watson That was about a year before I got there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And <laughs> This is what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about, void mind. Now listen to what he's saying here, especially in the sense that it's so different from most, what most meditators would think of as something about void mind. Okay. Now we will take a look at the void mind or free mind, something much un- misunderstood, even though it's an important matter, the heart, in fact, of the Buddhist religion. Um, I'm sure here that uh, Bhikkhu um, Dhamma Vitu is translating the word Buddha Sasana into the word Buddhist religion. And I can understand why he would say that. But I make a distinction between the actual Dhamma and the Buddhist religion. And this, in fact, is part of that. So I'll mention that, that when I use the word Buddhist religion, I'm actually snickering and putting down a group of idiots. But when Bhikkhu Buddha says the Buddhist religion, he's talking about, yeah, that group is there, and then there's also the noble view, and they are also included in this word of Buddhist religion. Okay. So in that regard, it's at the heart of the Buddhist religion is this quality of void mind. Hmm. there are those who misunderstand the void mind concept those in a position to it those who make a joke of it those who criticize it those who slander and say unpleasant things those who pretend that it's something bad and so on uh, there, there are some ways that the mind can't be void that there must be some thinking Okay, that's what they believe. Uh, That if the mind is void, then there won't be any thought so that the body will be like a piece of wood and capable of doing anything. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I have seen people sit in meditation to the point that they've gotten themselves like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I guess in that sense, they're in a different kind of void mind. We say, however, that all activities should be done with a void mind. But some people don't understand that. There are even those who claim that if the mind is void of me and mind, then there is no one to be responsible for anything. No one will try to do anything to develop anything, and that we should somehow be imperfect as people because of this thing, void mind. Some say that if the mind is void, then there won't be any uh, patriotic feelings and no regard for religion, even for their own family. There are those who charge that void mind isn't a Buddhist principle at all. Instead, they say it is something made up by the speaker to fool people. Actually. I can understand that position. And in English, in America, we'd call that being empty headed. Uh huh. Mm. Okay, so, mm. uh, but Vikabuddha Das is pointing at something different than empty headed. Mm. Um, so we see how this concept is misunderstood, even though it's very important because people need to be aware that if the mind isn't sometimes void, then The results can be terminal. People survive because the mind is void from time to time. So they can rest and relax. If the mind is troubled and depressed by the feelings connected uh, with the me and mind, then madness is a possibility or some nervous disease. In fact, people can kill themselves, because they can't and won't relax. If the mind can't stop and can't relax at all, then there would even be death. This is something we need to know that we can survive in a reasonably sane manner because the mind naturally experiences voidness from time to time. And at such times there is physical relaxation and contentment and the mind is best able to think and to function. Now, I would say that generally that's generally a short period of time. Like when the guy first comes home and sits down for one, two, five seconds, he's been void mine before he yells at his wife. (laughs) There's an Archie Bunker in everyone. (laughs) Um, Now, regarding the void or free mind, we will split the matter up into three. There is voidness by way of samadhi, voidness by way of vipassana, and voidness by way of nature. The voidness that happens quite naturally. The voidness of samadhi occurs when someone is at any level of jhana. I stop I rest my case. I'm ready to close the book now. <laughs> He's just said what I wanted to hear. I wanted to know that Vicky Buddha Das has said that because I've known it to be true. And now I've got solid evidence that I got it somehow or another from him. <laughs> and now I've got solid evidence of that. The voidness of samadhi occurs uh, when someone is in any level of jhana. When fully the jhana, there is freedom from defilement, and the mind is fixed on the components of the jhana or on the signs that we're uh, using as an object. At such times, the self-thought is absent. There is no thinking that I have inner jhana or that I'm concentrated. In fact, if we do so, we throw ourselves right out of it. That's one of those kind of thoughts that'll throw us out of being in jhana. If there is, then there is no possibility if really being samanti. So we need to forget the I Completely and leaves the mind to fix on its object, on the object of samadhi, until the factors of jhana are fully arising. In all levels of jhana, the mind has the characteristic of being free of the self idea. In the Pali text, this is called inner voidness. There isn't, uh, that's interesting. Um, (laughs) Vitu, my friend, translated something out of the Pali into the English where Bikki Dasa intended it to stay in the Pali.
1: Uh-huh.
0: In the Pali text, this is called, and it should be a Pali word, but it's not. It's what he called inner voidness, which that would actually be uh, possibly uh, Vihara Sunyata, but I don't know I don't know what it uh, actually was the problem but the, but the translation is inner voidness there isn't anyone doing the knowing this is freedom, at such time there is no defilement no nirvana that's the hindrances, mm-hmm. or the obstacles uh, to our uh, focus, they're all put to sleep. The thoughts of me and mine are, are absent and there, is n- and there is a focused mind fit for work. In this kind of experience, there is uh, contentedness, purity, stability, but there is also agility of the mind. Now that's one that I don't put a lot of uh, uh, point to, but yes, now the mind is really agile. It's really nimble. Why is it nimble? Because we want to be able to maintain this state, and so we go on guard. We keep that mind nimble and quick, so that if any hindrances come back up, we'll know it. Okay. There is a and the poly word for that is kama niya which is to say that the mind is nimble, quick, and able to do its proper duty. Such a mind can do anything well. If the mind isn't like this, then it isn't in samadhi and won't be able to function properly. Here Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is kind of pointing at this first jhana should be our walking around state of mind. We can still function and do anything, but we're doing it with a mind that's good for work and void of the bad feelings of personality. We're void of that self and everything associated with it. Hence, we can work with a void mind, especially when it involves the mental work connected with the attainment of the path, the fruit and nirvana. So he's saying, yes, not only is it true for all of our work, but when we're really focusing on the Dhamma and really looking at what's going on, then the mind can be nimble. It can be quick. We can put insights together. We can figure out what's going on in the mind. That's the kind of that, and that so we want to have the mind in that state or fit for work because the mind is actually quite a brilliantly subtle thing. So they say there are more tra- um, connections in the human brain than there are in all of the stars in all of the galaxies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so we are really well connected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that we can get that mind focused in a way so that it's quite agile
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: and so we can see things quickly
1: yeah.
0: it is said that if the mind is not void and not free then it is not in samadhi but if it is in samadhi then that is freedom itself this is the mind made void by way of samadhi. Now, voidness arises through the practice of vipassana. That is, though the clear seeing into the Dhamma, into the things the way they really are. This is about investigating anything to see it as it actually is to complete the world to uh, contemplate the world, for instance, and see it as void as any meaning of self. And the text have, uh, ooh, that's a long one. Atena va, a, no, I'm not gonna do it. <laughs>
1: um,
0: it's really saying that the, that the world is void. The whole business, no matter what, the entire world is void of any self. There's no, no self anywhere out there. Mm-hmm. For instance, there's no self in gold. There's no real goldness. What's the value in gold? It has properties, mm-hmm. but we can find all kinds of other things that have those same properties. Mm-hmm. But So there's no real reason to have value in gold
1: mm-hmm.
0: until it's my gold. Mm -hmm. and now it has some meaning mine Mm -hmm. that's where meanings and things come from is when it's uh, owned or controlled but the world in general which is out there and out of control there's no one really in control of the world Mm -hmm. which means there really is no self out there Mm -hmm. there's a set of rules but it's mostly chaos Mm -hmm. he says then in adding this word No matter what, the entire world is void of self. There is only a flow of idiopapajayata. That word in Pali, I know. (laughs)
1: That's
0: (laughs) one of Victor favorite words. There is only the flow of idiopapajayata, which means only the flow of cause-effect, 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 just like dominoes. The first domino hits the second domino. The second domino then falls over. And when it does, it may hit two dominoes. And when both uh, both those dominoes teeter and fall over, it may, in fact, hit four dominoes. And so things can really grow in that regard also, that cause, effect, cause, effect. And right now we're we're sitting in a sea of cause and effects that are happening literally uh, at a at the rate much faster than a trillionth of a second.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: While there's many hundreds and thousands of millions and trillions of molecules all around us, Mm -hmm. and they're all interacting with each other. And so coming to understand that, that's the idea of Vipassana, there's no self out there anywhere. It's just a, a little bit, it's a mess. And the better in tune we get with that mess, that selfless mess, then the closer to reality we are. There is no self-entity involved. There is nothing that could be clung to as a possession. This entire world is just Patita samupada Dhamma. Mm. A Patita samupada dhamma is something that arises in dependence on other things. The world, because it is not itself, exists. It must have some have come to be dependent on other things, so it's called Patita samupada dhamma. There's something about that. Look at what he's talking about is, is that if something actually exists on its own, then that means that it would not be subject to cause and effect. Mm-hmm. But in fact, we don't know of any such thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All we know is everything comes to arise and passes away depending upon conditions.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Even we've gotten to the point of building a place called CERN so we can prove that to ourselves right down to the tiniest of particles. Yeah, we can blow them all up. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is subject to particular Dhamma. Everything is uh, idiopapajayatam. Which means then that we can see a mutual interdependence that can be seen in everything, in all things in the world at large, a stone or a grain of sand cannot exist by itself and must arise dependent on other things. It's got to depend on something else. The tree arises in dependence on many things. For an animal to exist, it depends entirely on the necessary conditions being present. Even us, we are born, and we, are, and we continue to live out our lives in dependence, in dependence on a certain set of conditions being present. And this is what we call the world but it also is the solar system, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything, the entire universe is out there. But it, since everything is interdependent, and a really clear example of that, that the, that the planet Earth is completely dependent upon the sun. Yeah. If the sun went out, yeah. things could get really cold and dry yeah. in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So we are completely dependent upon things and interdependent. And the sun itself couldn't exist if it didn't have the necessary ingredients within it that caused the galaxy that it's in and so on and so on. Everything is completely independent or dependent upon something else. Like life itself in the way that it formed on the earth, was dependent upon the Earth getting into a certain condition, so that life could actually exist. Okay, so the, somehow on the planet Earth, that condition uh, happened. They also understand that that those things are uh, are very close to things called uh, stromatolites, which were the ones that took all of the carbon dioxide and uh, and everything out of the atmosphere and uh, Uh, Captured it. The carbon dioxide was captured in the forms of carbon, leaving us to have an oxygen atmosphere. But that took a long time because there was an awful lot of iron out there that was gobbling up all of that oxygen. So after all of the iron got its fill of all the oxygen that some stromatolites were putting out there, now we have an atmosphere that humans or that animals could actually exist in. Mm. And so you can see everything is really dependent yeah. and that uh, uh, seeing that is that Vipassana, that, mm. that deep inside to recognize, wait a minute, I am not who I think I am. I am far too dependent on everything else around me to think that I am. Yes. Because it, I only exist dependent upon conditions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it gives some perspective to life.
0: <laughs> <Really. clears throat> ah, let's see where we were. Okay, when the globe of the world forms, then it supplies the causes and conditions for arising of everything will, that will populate it. First, the world is a ball of fire, which gradually cools down, gradually hardens and dissolves into various elements and then into various things. All of this happens independence on the conditions being present for them to happen. Try to remember these words, even if they are a little strange. Vaisha means independence. And Samupada means arising. Okay, everything that can arise arises dependently upon something else. But teacher Samupada means something dependent arises. There isn't anything that isn't dependently arisen. Except for one thing. And that is Nirvana. This is kind of a joke. but It's, uh, it's a cute joke. But after from that all things are so. In this body of ours, every cell is dependently arising, every particulate, every atom, everything that we believe to be mine or me. Now, this me and mine belief, is, is it right or is it wrong? Do we believe in something that disagrees or with proof of nature? Well, Dhamma represents the fundamental truth of nature. And the truth of nature is that everything is actually dependently arisen. When we uh, manage to see in this way, then we know that all things are void of self. That there is really only the flowing on and the spinning around of Petit Samuppata Dhamma dependently arising and ceasing without end. If we see this, then we see voidness by way of Vipassana. If we have true voidness, or true wisdom rather, if we have true wisdom, we will see all of the forms, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, mind objects, all of these sense objects as dependently arisen, and therefore void. So don't Fall in love with anything that is void. Don't fall in fall for the beautiful forms, the sweet sounds, the fragrant odors, the delicious tastes, the soft touches, and the sort of feelings that delight the mind, knowing that the sense organs, the eyes, the ear, the nose, tongue, body, and mind, are being void also. Everything is void. In reality, the eye isn't self existent. It doesn't have a self. It's basically the natural element, which they in Pali call the, the Rupa Dhatu, the material element which forms the eyeball, the nerves, the eyes, and everything to do with the organ of sight. Then there is the wonderful element called Vinaya Dhatu, the consciousness element by which whenever the eye sees a form, Um, it will come to its duty and this vinya or consciousness will arise and seeing will happen. This is the way it is according to nature. There isn't a self who sees. There is just the seeing taking place according to the basic natural principle. Because there is um, I which is uh, complete and there is eternal sense object, a visible logic to meet the eye, then the consciousness element will come and do its duty at the eye and the eye will see a form. The particulars of that then go to the mind to be processed. The mind, however, isn't a self either. If we know in this way, then we know voidness through the Vipassana method, observing anything, observing all things together, observing them separately, observe the body intently, the body externally, the body internally, and observe other people whose uh, world is also void, but they don't know that. (laughs) When we see this internally, then we will see it externally too. If we see voidness in ourselves, we will also see it in others. We will see how the world is void and, now, and how other worlds are void and we will uh, know voidness by way of clear understanding. And that's the birth of wisdom. Now recording the voidness that uh, occurs naturally here we need to understand the normal mind. The mind, when there is nothing interfering with it, when it's without uh, nirvanas without kalesas, it's luminous. At such times, it could be called the original mind, as it was in the womb. The intermediate disappearance of that luminosity happens because defilements enter. Bringing with it the feeling of me and mine. For example, the mind meets anything that causes satisfaction. And then there is desire followed by clinging. Actually, I don't agree with Dhamma to <laughs> here using the word satisfaction. I think that in fact he, he means to mean the feeling of I like it. For example, the mind meets anything that causes a feeling of liking. And therefore, there is desire tanha, followed by clinging upadana to the idea that there is desire in me, the one who desires. In this way, that the self sensorizes, that there comes to be a me who desires who, um, who to get or how to get something so that it can be mine. Me and mine, and really vain and non, uh, uh, It's nonsensical, but not. That's not in our understanding. There isn't anyone who could allow or could really accept that the me and mine aren't realities, because they are the most powerful things in the mind. It's what makes us gives us our personality. But observe how terrible. The arising of the me and mine is, and recognize that they aren't uh, uh, permanent things. knowing that they come and go, come and go, that they arise intermittently, and know that if they don't arise, then the mind is in its original luminous state, naturally void state, and without us having had to do anything at all. If there isn't any uh, reason for the mind to lose its uh, luminosity, then it will be in its original state quite naturally. This is the naturally void mind. Now, what the Buddha is pointing out here, I think, flies in the face of the way that most meditators uh, tend to think things, that their mind is constantly in hindrances, constantly in junk thoughts.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But in fact, we can apply the mind. If we didn't apply the mind, at least have a void, a void mind a little bit, we couldn't drive a car. And you know that some people can get in the car and they are so st- strung out or upset, yeah. they can't drive. Yeah. So that happens too. Yes. Sometimes we can't drive when, we're, when the mind is not void, when it's hung up with, with things. Okay? Uh, let me check something here. Well, he's going to go on and on with this talk. <laughs> this is nowhere near over. Okay. And, and we're 30 minutes into it. <laughs> so, um, do you want to read on? Because I've read to you what I wanted to. To yeah. Say. That's,
1: uh, yeah. Okay. I. Okay.
0: I see. So we can discuss that. Do you have any questions about it?
1: Not really. It's it's just very nice to hear. <laughs> it's it's really it feels like this great freedom <laughs> coming. Yeah. I, I think this is what I've started to realize. Uh, uh, in my own experience, I've kind of read about it before, but now I can really, I, I really know it. I I, I see it. Okay. Uh, yeah.
0: I, I did mention that Bhikkhu dasa told a little joke, and that mm-hmm. when was when he said the only thing that is not conditioned is nibbana.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And. The reason that he said that and the reason that it's a joke is because, yes, uh, nirvana arises when the conditions go away. Okay, so it becomes unconditioned like that. An example of that, in fact, the original way that the word was used was in two ways. One was in animal training. When a wild dog, when the wildness is taken out of him, then he's nibbana. Another way is when the food is being cooked, it's hot. And it's not edible very well when it's really hot. It needs to cool off. It needs to nibbana. Okay. So we can say then that the the food is nabanaed because it's had uh, the thing that was keeping it hot was the fire. Now that that condition is removed, the food is naturally going to cool. Yeah. But that's 2,500-year-old thinking. Because we know, oh no, I can take that food out of that hot, that heat, and keep it hot by putting it into a certain device that's well insulated. Mm. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. And so, um, the real, the, the actual reality is, is that the BANA is not absolutely magically unconditioned. Mm. But it does mean that when we take the conditioning of mm. uh, the mind away, then the mind is in fact void, and nibbana uh, is there.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And that this is really great to understand that we have little these little nibbana moments that we are capable of going into void mind, but mm. guess what? it happens and people don't know it they don't recognize
1: it yes uh, that that's uh, what i uh, realized uh, from your teaching that I, I wouldn't have known anything about this otherwise because I, I might i may have read it in books but i i didn't get it like this before i mm-hmm. knew before when i was uh, uh, reading your uh, what you wrote <laughs> uh, <clears throat> in different places I I kind of got it somehow I knew there was something into that and in there but it, it really didn't apply to myself in the way it's doing now now I I know it <laughs> so to speak yeah
0: great right. yeah. Um part for me of that knowing something
1: mm-hmm. is
0: also the knowing of where did that come from was that something that i realized on my own was it something that i'd heard someplace else and added it in did i get that from the buddha out of the sutta did i get it from bhikkhu buddha dasa yeah and so that's why i like to read the stuff because yeah. like like this one it was a suit to or it was a talk that was given before I arrived mm-hmm. and had stayed in Thai language until just the past couple of years when Dhamma Bitu has written it. Yeah. and yet I know everything that's in the book almost line by line. yeah but in fact, when I was talking to you I, re- I recognized that wait a minute, I better shut up because uh, <laughs> he's about to, uh, I'm about to read out of the book what I was going to say anyway. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that, that's that's a feeling of knowing that oh. i know that i've got this oh. because it feels right in my own experience it fits in with what i learned a long time ago from bhikkhu buddha dasa mm. and ta-da <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now i've got the solid proof mm. right in the hand
1: yeah okay.
0: especially um the part um Because there's something that can be connected together, and he might, in fact, later connect it together. And that is the connection between the Vipassana Mm. understanding and the Samadhi understanding. Because, Mm. in fact, they are the same.
1: Mm.
0: At that point in time, when you're looking deeply and seeing clearly, the mind is collected. It's in that void state also. Yeah. And so you almost can't even have decent insights unless you're in some kind of jhana. Momentarily, at least enough to have that insight.
1: Yeah, it's like I'm actually also reading this Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree is, Uh but yeah, and I read it before and it was like this, I knew there was something in there I didn't really get, but now when I'm reading it, it it makes, uh, it's like, yes, this is, I know what it's about now. (laughs) So that's...
0: one thing about the heartwood of the bow tree, and this is true about all, a lot of the books of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, mm-hmm. uh, and that is, is that he spoke very low class Thai language.
1: Mm-hmm. He
0: spoke the language of the street and sometimes the language of the mob. I mean, he spoke low class language.
1: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> but the Western translators, when they translate this, they struggle with it. Because um, we're trying to write a book here, folks.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so they raise sometimes the level of the language, and sometimes they raise it too high. uh
1: uh-huh. okay. And so
0: it, it sounds, and the heartwood of the tree appears and feels, when you're reading it like this, is really high-class intellectual yeah. stuff.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: But it's not. You can strip that high class intellectual wow. stuff right out of there. Uh-huh. You guys know this is really gut level stuff. <laughs>
1: uh, I think this is so important to know. I I didn't know this before. So th- this is crucial for me to to get this understanding. I, I wouldn't get it otherwise. So well,
0: This is the value of the lingering culture of the Westerners who know Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, who listen to his old talks, who have been around and seen him, Uh, uh, not just um, one author doing one book and another author doing another book. No, we're, we're trying to put all of this kind of stuff together, and that's one of the criticisms of that one. I think, in fact, it was written I'm not sure, but this is one of them. I think it was done by Donald Schwerer at uh, Swarthmore University. A Harvard dude, if you know what I mean.
1: Okay, <laughs> I can guess. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, so, and, he, and he writes a lot of very high-class documents. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, and he's mostly interested in uh, the history. He's actually quite, uh, quite up on all of the um, political stuff that's been happening in Thailand and how Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was in and out of that. Oh. Sort of like, um, how to say it? Oh, there's a movie that's called Forrest Gump. Yeah, and in that movie, he winds up being even in scenes with President Nixon and Johnson and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. They kind of slide him into the back of it. Well, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was somehow really like that within the Thai political system uh, for about a 50-year period. Mm-hmm. Okay. Longer than 50 years, right up until the time he died. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's really humorous that I like about Buddha Dasa is the story that the king of Thailand himself offered to have a helicopter to come to Wat Suan Mo, find a place to land, and take Bhikkhu Dasa back to one of the best hospitals in Bangkok. That was the plan. And Vikabuddha Dasa turned the king down. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'll die here. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so like I say he was a bit political right up to the very end of it all <laughs> yeah that's cool <laughs> so, in that, so in that regard it was uh, easily uh, yeah 50 years
1: mm.
0: 60 <laughs> at least 60 years he was in politics so um, <laughs> the, and, and admirably so because he's actually helped transform Thailand in several ways. One is taking a lot of the magic out, and another one was in unifying the Sangha. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he collect, when, when the uh, elderly monks figured out what he knew and, and how he taught, they, it almost formed an organization of elder monks around him that uh, is quite remarkable. Um, and that the, the generation of monks that were there at Wat so and Mok when I was there at Wat so and Mok wind up being, um, let us say, highly sought in important wants around the country to become the temple abbot. Mm-hmm. They want an old teacher of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa to be the abbot of the various temples around. So uh, that legacy is really strong in Thailand. Mm-hmm.
1: Still. Oh.
0: Even though the kids nowadays, when you say Bhikkhu Dasa, they don't know anything about a Bhikkhu Buddhadasa because he's been dead for 30 years. And so oh. it's out of their culture. Yeah. But it, but, it, but he still affects Thai culture in mm-hmm. a really, really deep way. Oh. But so many of us have gotten such wonderful benefit out of what yeah. he's taught. Yeah. 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 Mm. <laughs> yeah. So we, we pass that on with joy.
1: Mm. Yeah <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> So in in this regard the way that we are practicing anapanasati is, is that since we're coming so close to first jhana anyway, why not go ahead and go for first jhana, get the mind really fit for work, so then our vipassana is really solid first class mm. vipassana. Mm. And
1: yeah.
0: that also fits uh, with the suttas, that if you don't have both, do both. If you have one, do the other.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> mm.
0: And so it's kind of a two-step operation anyway, but um, the way that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa described it is precisely correct, because people can get really deep insights into the crap of this world without being in 1st John at all.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: They can be thoroughly disgusted with it. Yeah. But it's not them that's disgusted. It's just Mm. disgust. (laughs) There's no self in it. Um, And so this is quite quite possible. When we do a bit of combination so that we really do get the mind fit for work, Mm. then we can see that point that uh, I was mentioning that um, I would change the way the wording was because um, um, Dhamma Vitu was actually doing Samapada right there in a sequence of mm-hmm. um, Vedana, uh, Tanha, Upadana. Mm-hmm. And the first one he translated as uh, satisfaction. But that's not. It's not satisfaction. Because satisfaction does not lead to greed. Mm-hmm. Satisfaction leads to satisfaction. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So we have to really look at what's going on in the actual suttas there and just recognize. In fact, I might even point that out to him, that he might want to find a way of, once the book's out on the press, it's hard to bring it back. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it actually is the feeling of liking. Yeah. I like it. Yeah but I don't have to want it. I can like it, and mm. that's it. Mm. This is also a very important thing to
1: know. Yeah. Because I, I think I've been throwing everything out somehow. I I used to do that a lot before. <laughs> I, I, I just... Um, uh, and also the joy went <laughs> out and everything just went out because uh, uh, I knew it was, if I had it I, uh, at that time I, I kind of thought it was going to go away anyway, so better not to have it and lose it. <laughs>
0: Didn't Shakespeare tell you it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all?
1: Yeah, but but I didn't know. But Shakespeare
0: didn't read Sutra number 87, did he? (laughs) (laughs) Which is the the one that says uh, grief comes from those who are dear. So you're saying, oh, I don't want the joy to become dear to me. Therefore, I'm going to throw it out before I like it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I kind know. Of. And also, I think I never knew what uh, love was at all. So. I don't
0: either. I, I really, really have to, to have, take five or 10 minutes to talk about the word love before I'll let yeah. it <laughs> uh. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the word love, no. but somewhere in there they'll come up with a definition that we can use other words. Mm-hmm. rather than love to describe
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and so because there are all there are good ways to define the word love but almost always it's the the way that is defined and used is not really a good idea
1: yeah yeah <laughs> the one of my
0: friends says don't you just love her dress
1: yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, I never understood those things at all.
0: Or, <laughs> uh, 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 I love you, won't you marry me?
1: Yeah. <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> That's like saying, I want to own you, but I don't want to pay a dowry. <laughs> <Exactly>. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: Other than an emotional dowry. Yeah. But it really has, much of the word love has to do with ownership and control, and um, uh, very little to do with uh, uh, the kind of love that would, um, let us say, require Mm. self-sacrifice, except that when we add wisdom to the mix, Generally, we can figure out a way for things to work out without any anybody getting sacrificed. Mm. Let's use our noggins here. Let's figure out what's going on,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. which is back to that that series that I was mentioning about on television, the noble gunslinger, the one who does not want to use the gun. He wants to figure out a wise way to get these people out of their yeah. um, uh, yeah. uh and get them to stop fighting with each other, basically, and get yeah. along. So this is basically what we would look like. So we don't have to think about it. Is I love her enough to sacrifice myself for her, because that's that's a um, it's a blindness in there. Yeah. But then figuring out, we can work this out. We yeah. can figure out a way to get this solved. So sure. um, anyway, that's the word uh, love. And generally the word love then has to do with upadana or tanha. It's is a clinging kind of love rather than an altruistic kind of love.
1: Yeah.
0: Or a compassionate kind of love.
1: Yeah.
0: And hopefully that wisdom machine was was working long before any danger actually arose. Yeah. I, I the think there, then we can prevent conflicts from even forming.
1: Yeah, I think uh, can't people also uh, give uh, to get things? <laughs> Many people uh, I think
0: Are you talking about sweetening the pot? Uh, what, what is that? I don't know what that is. That- that, that's an old gambling thing. Never mind. Oh. Um, uh, what what we're talking about, uh, okay, another one would be priming the pump. <laughs> I'm from Sweden, you know. I'm... <laughs> yeah, but Sweden has a pump and you have to take some water and you have to pour it into the pump to get it to go and now more water will come out of it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we mean by priming the pump, yes. Uh- okay Mm -hmm. especially if we the pump is a is a joy pump Mm
1: -hmm.
0: (laughs) so that you prime it with joy and you keep pumping it and priming it with joy and soon you've got joy yeah yes joy is a wonderful um uh gift to give Mm -hmm. and and in fact um it it was a lesson that i remember learning when I was in North Carolina as a monk. So I'd been a monk for a while. And that what I learned was this relationship between generosity and gratitude, Mm -hmm. that they seem to be a team that works together. Mm -hmm. So that if if a gift is given, but it is not received in gratitude, then no one gets any benefit. Yeah, Okay, an example of that would be you send a big check to the Red Cross and and some secretary opens it, sees the check, puts it in the bank, and goes and opens the next piece of mail. Mm. She got no benefit because it wasn't going to her anyway. Mm. Okay, so much for giving money to NGOs. I want to find someone who's going to eat what I'm giving them to eat. (laughs) I want to find a way of being generous so that the people who are getting my generosity will get the benefit of my generosity right then and there. Mm. That's the lesson that I learned that is very Buddhist. Mm. Uh, So um, there is some consternation about how much, uh, let us say, how big a thank you a monk should give to someone putting something in his bowl. And uh-huh. the answer is, it's got to be a middle path. That if you gush with the thanks, then that robs them of whatever future merit that they're making. And so, monks in Thailand are taught not to say thank you, but yeah. to take it and receive it quietly. Okay. okay? Uh, however, uh, the, the way that it's received, can, can point out whether the monk, when he's receiving that, uh, he approves of it, he likes it, he accepts it, he acknowledges that this is a gift, and that he has he's showing gratitude in a subtle way. Okay. Okay, so becoming grateful for what people do for you. But now that I've gotten the, up to the place that I am now, I really like to show gratitude when people help.
1: Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. It really is part of the transaction
1: mm. so that
0: people feel really good. When, when when one person helps another, it really is very much like one hand washing the other.
1: Mm.
0: And that, that's the real benefit. The real benefit is the connection and the joy and the friendship that arises out of the gift being well-given and Mm well-received, and it has to have both components, which means that the gift giver has a responsibility to give something that will be well-received. My favorite example is Granny goes over to uh, her daughter and and little Billy's house and gives him a Christmas present on Christmas, and he opens it up and it's a pair of socks. And he looks at her, and he looks at the socks, and he puts it down, and he goes back over somewhere, and Mom says, aren't you going to say thank you to Granny? And so he gives up a begrudging thank you, okay? Now, if Granny knows what I know, she's going to go to Mom and says, what is Billy really like? What would be a really big surprise for him? Something that he's not expecting, or maybe he wants and doesn't expect you to give it to him. What can we do together to really surprise the kid and make it feel good? Okay, and then to the dad's great surprise, in comes Granny with a pony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the bicycle or something like that to where little Jimmy he's gonna love it. He's gonna say, Thank you, Granny thank you for caring about me Okay, and that's the kind of bonds that the grandmother really does want with her grandchildren and yet when Christmas has become a ceremonial obligation then they often miss the very time when gift giving is most valuable Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and we feel obligated to give the gift and because of that obligation the whole point of gift giving is lost
1: yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, those things can be complicated.
0: <laughs> until you use your wisdom eye, until you begin to look at what's going on. When we wake up, we can say, aha, I see that. <laughs> but for your average person, you're right. Things look really complicated. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: mm. So that's the point about generosity. But if you think about it, that's back to giving with a void mind
1: mm.
0: Mm. because it's void of I, me, or mine mm. and it is genuinely giving something that then is going to be well received
1: yeah.
0: and so it takes that kind of wisdom to recognize, oh, if I'm going to give a gift let's make it something worth giving and worth receiving Yeah. Hmm. yeah because Buddhism is all about generosity Hmm. so I look for really really beautiful big gifts that I could give people like the Dhamma (laughs) yeah Yeah. yeah that's what they say the Dhamma is the very very best gift that can be given
1: yeah yeah
0: And look how well it's received.
1: Yeah.
0: That's what makes it worth giving, is the fact that it's really well received.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. So, do you have any questions about today's book, read and ramble?
1: Not really. (laughs) I have another one that... um... Uh, if I could ask you after this recording.
0: Okay, if, we can okay. say goodbye okay. on the recording and then we can continue to chat. So we'll say yeah. goodbye recording and turn Thank it off so and go. Uh, how do we turn that recording off? I know I can do it. Somewhere. There we go. Bye-bye.